Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. Thank you for the worship. That was beautiful. I'm glad that you're all so hearty that you can show up when it's so cold. So it's good to see your smiling faces here today. Get my PowerPoint ready here. And dear ones, last week we had learned how Jesus was faithful in the wilderness so that he could be our new substitute. Well, this week we're going to learn of Jesus' move to Galilee to begin his ministry. And what we're going to learn is that this move to Galilee was a fulfillment of a prophecy written in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, some 700 years in advance. And Matthew's purpose in demonstrating this magnificent prophecy's fulfillment is to show us as the readers that Jesus fulfills all of what the Old Testament had foretold regarding who Christ would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. And so, dear brothers and sisters, today you and I are going to see the fulfillment of very specific, historically verifiable prophecies, which really proves to the world that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, and that you and I as believers can have great confidence that our faith is well-placed in him. And so today we have the honor of looking at how the Messianic age dawned in Galilee. Now, I want to begin today as we look at this passage. We're going to see Jesus make a claim that as his ministry began in Galilee, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want you to think of the schematic that I think was in the minds of most of the New Testament writers. That is, they had a two age scheme. And that is, they believed that there was this old age dominated by sin and death, which would one day be replaced by the messianic age characterized by righteousness and life. And so what would bring this about, of course, is the work of Jesus. So I'm going to pull up my pointer, and I want you to think about, as Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee, think about it here in the timeline, and I want you to think about this as being the inauguration, the first coming, and the inauguration of the Messianic age. But notice in the diagram, the old age hangs on until the second coming. And so the first coming that we're looking at here today inaugurates the last days. And so the last days characterize this middle section. So here we have the inauguration in Galilee. One day we'll have the consummation in Jerusalem. We have the first coming here, second coming here. And in between are the last days. Okay, so again, that's what we're looking at today today. The inauguration of the Messiah's ministry begins where? In Galilee. Okay, so let's look at verses 12 through 13 where we see Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And again, this is foretold in the prophecy of Isaiah. Let's listen to what Matthew said. He said, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus had heard about John's arrest, and therefore he withdrew. He withdrew to Galilee. Now, that term withdrew, anakoreo, is important because, and you don't have to turn to it, but just jot it down if you're a note taker. In Matthew 14, 13, the same term withdrew, anakoreo, will come up again. And that's where Jesus will learn about John the Baptist's murder. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, I think it's telling 
that I think one gets the sense that there is an ordained timetable with Jesus' ministry. And both the arrest of John and his subsequent murder are pivotal points in Christ's ministry. In both cases, he withdraws. Here in Matthew 4 and again in Matthew 14. Now, notice here in verse 13, I want you to recall that Jesus is leaving his hometown, Nazareth, and he's going to be moving again to Capernaum. Now, Nazareth was important. Do you remember earlier on in our studies in Matthew, we learned that Nazareth had as its root in Hebrew, Netzer, more than likely. You remember Netzer meant branch. So it was promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the branch of David. We see that in Isaiah 11. We see that in Jeremiah 23. And so the branch of Yahweh, the branch of David, the Messiah, ironically grew up where? In Branchville. That's where he grew up. And so he fulfills all of the details, but now he settles at Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew makes that very clear. Notice the line, the underlying phrase, which says, which is by the sea. That is taken directly from Isaiah 9.1. Now, it's important to see that both in Matthew here and also if you read the context of Isaiah 9.1 through 2, I think clearly the phrase, which is by the sea, refers to the Sea of Galilee. Now, I say that because some scholars today will say, well, no, the way by the sea, remember there was a famous Roman saying, the Via Mare, the way by the sea was by the Mediterranean. Well, that's true. But for the fulfillment of this prophecy, the significance of the sea here is Galilee. And Matthew makes that very clear because it says it's in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, remember, Zebulun and Naphtali, those are the two northern tribes up by Galilee. That's where they had their allotted lands. Now, why were they significant? Well, as we're going to find out in the Isaiah prophecy, they were the first to experience the Assyrian judgment in 735 B.C., and then later again in 722 B.C. And so what Matthew is doing here is he's setting us up as the reader to see the amazing fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus' moved to Galilee truly was. It really is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. And so now we see that Jesus goes to Galilee just as predicted long ago, in the book of Isaiah, Matthew 4, 14 through 16, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, I want you to notice here at the outset that Matthew uses that very familiar formula this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, or sometimes you'll say Jeremiah the prophet. And again, that's his way of showing you that this specific, historically verifiable prophecy was fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And then immediately what he does is he cites Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. So everything you see in all caps is Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. All right. Now, I want you to notice here the reference again to Zebulun and Naphtali. If you recall reading the book of Joshua, in Joshua 19, do you remember that all of the tribes of Israel were given their allotted lands? Well, Zebulun and Naphtali were given their lands up by the region 
of Galilee. Now, this is why this is significant. When the enemies of Israel would come against them, whether it would be Assyria or whether it be the Babylonians, remember, the Assyrians and the Babylonians in Mesopotamia, they were straight east of Israel. But they could not go straight west because they would run into the Arabian Desert. So when they would launch an invasion, they would first go north, and they would follow the, the Fertile Crescent, and they would come down from the north. And that's why time and time again, when you read like the book of Joel, it's the enemy of the north that is feared. That was the direction from which Israel's enemies came. Now, why is that important? Because in Isaiah 9, who was the first to experience the judgment because of their own sin in Israel at the hands of the Assyrians? The people of Zebulun and Naphtali. In 735 BC, there was a wicked ruler of Assyria named Tiglath-Pileser. And he sent the Assyrians down, and they were nasty buggers. They would take some of their captives, and they would just drag them behind a chariot. And if they couldn't make it, well, they'd just be dragged to death. That's how they treated their prisoners. And then by 722 B.C., they sent another invasion where it absolutely shattered the northern ten tribes of Israel. They deported them, and they transported new Gentile pagans in their place to completely obliterate them. I want you to get your mindset away from Minnesota in the year 2022. And put your mind in the place of an Israelite. Because to them, this wasn't just 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. It was Pearl Harbor times a thousand. They lost the northern ten tribes of Israel. It was devastating. It was the greatest gloom that had ever come upon the people of God at that time. So I want you to get a sense of this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 8.22, the very last verse of Isaiah chapter 8. And I want you to see the great gloom because that is going to be contrasted with the great glory in the dawning of the light of the Messianic age that will one day come to the same region. Again, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 8.22. Isaiah 8.22. And again, as you turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, what you're going to see is how the Israelites, because of their own sin, were going to fall to the gloominess of judgment. Isaiah 8.22, it says, Then they, that's Israel, will look to the earth. Now, stop there for just a moment. One verse earlier, they did look to the Lord. They looked up, but they only looked up to curse him. And if you read earlier in Isaiah chapter 8, They were cursing the Lord because they didn't believe. They were consulting mediums and spiritists. They were engaged in idolatry. So what God was using is he was using the Assyrians as instruments of his wrath. So the idea that they looked to the earth is a way to say that they were living as pagans do, not looking to God, but looking to the earth to do their own thing. And notice what it says. It says, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Stop there. In that one verse, darkness is used twice. You have gloom and anguish. Gloom, anguish, darkness, darkness. That's the way it was in the year 735 BC. But notice the great contrast of what would come upon the people of Zebulun, the people of Naphtali, up by Galilee. The great contrast, Isaiah 9.1, keep your Bibles there. 
It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that's God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali with contempt. Stop there. The contempt is the wrath of God. Wrath poured out using the Assyrians who would smash them because of their sin. But now the grace of God will be poured out. Notice the but later on, that's in the dawning of the Messianic age. He will make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, if we look to verse 16, it's a very good rendering of the following verse of Isaiah 9-2. You can just read along. Again, here's the promise. The people who were sitting in darkness, the darkness of their judgment, saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Brothers and sisters, how amazing is this? 735 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, it was promised that those who first suffered the devastation of this judgment in 735 BC, they would be the first to see the messianic light dawn. That's how good and how gracious God is. And I'm sure that in Isaiah's day and for hundreds of years after, there were skeptics who said, where are these promises? Show me this promise where this light is going to dawn of this messianic age. And by the way, we have the same skeptics today who say, well, you show me where the Lord is. He hasn't come yet. But brothers and sisters, you and I know 735 years after that prophecy was given, it did come true. The messianic age dawned as Christ began his ministry in Galilee, the very place that God promised. Why? Because even when men are unfaithful, God is faithful. The God who cannot lie. Now, in light of the fact that now the messianic age has dawned, we're going to see Jesus preach repentance because the dawning of the messianic age ushers in the possibility of the imminent kingdom. Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want you to think of this phrase where it says, From that time Jesus began to preach. What that clause is telling us is that it became the modus operandi of Christ to preach repentance just like John the Baptist did. So it's not as if John the Baptist and Jesus had different theological messages. No, Jesus is preaching what John did, that is, the need to repent. Now, the term repent there, metonoao, means to have a change of mind. It means to turn from sin and idolatry and godlessness and turn to God in his terms. It's synonymous with conversion itself. And remember, the same parallel passage in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So my point in saying that is repentance always leads to something. You're turning from something and turning to something. Turning from unbelief and you're turning to faith. So if you have biblical repentance, you're turning to faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that in our application. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Why should someone repent? Well, notice Matthew tells us, he gives us an explanatory four. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus says. The reason we should repent and turn to him 
is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? In fact, notice in the box you have this verb. It's actually a perfect active indicative of ingitso. And you might be saying, so what? <laughs> and you would be right to say that, but let me explain why I think this may be significant. I often think that the perfect tense brings up significant events in the Bible. Here, I don't think we have an exception. We have the norm. Now, let me explain what the perfect tense does, because we don't think like this in English, but a perfect tense in Greek has to do with an event that was completed in the past, but the emphasis is its continuing ramifications in the present. Okay, let me try to give you an illustration so you can get your hand around it or your head around it. Think about when you took your driver's test. Many of you took that when you were about 16 years old. I know I did. And as long as you haven't had too big of a lead foot and gotten thrown in the clink and taken, you know, they haven't taken your license away, the fact that you got your license when you were 16 has lasting ramifications to this day. You can go out and drive. Hence, the perfect. You completed the driver's test, 16, and the implications are always with you the rest of your life. The idea that Jesus is conveying is that once the inauguration of the kingdom occurs, it sets in motion the last days. And at some point in the last days, Jesus will come again. And therefore, because he can come again at any time in the last days, the kingdom is at hand. The way I would render this, perhaps, maybe a better way of rendering it is, it has drawn near. That's a good way of rendering that perfect tense. It is at hand. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who teaches this, by the way. It's the apostles and the New Testament writers. In fact, let's look at what James 5.8 said. Here, James, the brother of the Lord, said, you, that's believers, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, the first thing I want to define here is what does he mean by the coming? Is he talking about the first coming or the second coming? Well, he must be talking about the second coming. The term parousia here that's used, whenever it is referring to the coming of Christ, the parousia can be used for other things, but the, when it's used of Christ's coming, it is only used to refer to his second coming. In fact, let me cite to you the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, hardly a dispensational source, but they themselves would say, that so to the forefront of the minds of the apostles was this doctrine of imminence, the doctrine that, yes, the kingdom can break forth at any time in the last days, that the New Testament writers dare not use the term parousia for Christ's first coming, and they exclusively use it for his second coming, otherwise you'd get the two confused. That's how certain they were of the imminent return of Christ. And so notice... He says, for the parousia, the second coming of the Lord is what? It's near. It's near. That's the identical verb, identical form, perfect, active, indicative, I mean, get so as used here. The same one. It has drawn near. Why? Because the beginning of Christ's ministry and the subsequent pouring of the Spirit ushered in the last days. And it's in the last days that you and I are now living where the kingdom has drawn near. How near? Is it a day away? A week away? 
a month away, a hundred years away, you don't know. It is perpetually at hand until it comes. And so this is why it is absolutely necessary that every single person would repent and believe the gospel. And brothers and sisters, the dawning of the messianic light in Galilee we saw today is really the inauguration of the messianic age. The inauguration entails suffering. The inauguration involves atonement and the forgiveness of sins. But at the consummation, at the second coming, there's going to be glory and honor and resurrection. And the good news is that kingdom is now at hand. Okay, so let's look at three applications here this morning from this text. The first one is that we as believers can be absolutely confident in Jesus' messianic credentials because he fulfills predictive prophecy. The greatest, I think, evidence of who Christ is and the case for Christianity comes from predictive prophecy. Now, we have a lot of other evidence. We've got archaeological evidence and sound logical reasoning and all sorts of things. But predictive prophecy is extraordinary. And we're going to look at some amazing prophecies today and build our case for Christ. Number two, the first coming of Christ ushers in the last days and his imminent kingdom. Do you know, when I was a brand new believer back in the 90s, I was taught that what ushered in the last days was the rebirth of Israel in 1948. It's not true. Now, I'm not poo-pooing the significance of 1948, but biblically, it's the first coming of Christ and the subsequent pouring out of the Spirit that ushers in the last days. Okay, and we have to know that because why? That means the kingdom is at hand. That's the idea. Number three, what should we do because the kingdom is at hand? Well, we should repent. Repentance and faith are necessary in light of Christ's imminent kingdom. We'll talk about the gospel. So let's begin with number one. The reason that every person should believe in Jesus Christ is because it's true. Because the evidence is so overwhelming. Now, the purpose of why we believe in Jesus Christ is because we get forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, and that's what we need. That's the purpose. But the reason why everyone should believe is because it's true. We shouldn't believe in myths and fairy tales. And the greatest evidence that I think that we have that these things are true is found in predictive prophecy. And I want you to think then about what we saw today. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 said that when the Messiah begins his ministry, it would be in Galilee. That was prophesied 735 years in advance. And I know that there are skeptics out there who will say, well, yeah, but Jesus knew that prophecy, and therefore he lived in such a way where he made that come about. You can determine to live in a certain area, perhaps to fulfill a various prophecy. The problem with that viewpoint is we're going to see many other prophecies that Jesus could not control if he were a mere mortal. In other words, where he was born, etc., etc. In fact, let's begin with one that we saw early on in Matthew in our studies. That is the promise of the virgin birth that was prophesied 715 years in advance, in advance in Isaiah 7:14. Now, it's extraordinary enough that there would be a virgin birth. Do you know there's never been a virgin birth prior to Jesus? And there has never been one after. It is unique. It is extraordinary. And let me ask, how many in here had anything to do with how you were born? No. 
could Jesus, if he were a mere mortal, contrive how he was born? No. He could contrive that he began his ministry, perhaps in Galilee, but he can't contrive how he would be born. Now, what's more, let's add to that Micah 5.2, written 710 years in advance, it was promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, that's how Herod the Great found out where Jesus was. He asked the scribes of Israel, they were the scholars of the day, hey, where is Messiah to be born? They knew. Micah 5, too, is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so that's why Herod the Great sent out his troops and he murders the babies age two and under. But praise be to God that Jesus had been brought out of there by Joseph and Mary to Egypt, being warned by an angel. Okay, now think about it. Can you control where you were born? I, I was born in Minneapolis, but I had nothing to do with it. So this is something certainly Jesus could not contrive. It's something that is miraculous. All of a sudden, we see three prophecies piled up that only fit in the life of one person. Now, let's go further. Let's go to Zechariah eleven twelve that the Messiah was to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. In fact, I want you to turn to this prophecy. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. In fact, we'll only read 13a for the sake of time. But Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. Remember in your Old Testament, uh, Malachi is the last of the minor prophets, the last uh, book in our canon of the Old Testament. Zechariah is the one just prior to that. Okay, so remember, the Israelites, they have the same Old Testament canon we do. They just have a different order. Theirs ends in Chronicles. Ours ends in Malachi. Same books, different order. But Zechariah is one book prior to Malachi. So Zechariah 11.12. Now, as you turn to Zechariah 11.12, I want to show you a little pattern. Zechariah functions as the prophet, as a good shepherd of Israel, who is pointing to the greatest shepherd of all of Israel, the Messiah. And so he sets up a pattern how he's mistreated ends up being how Messiah is mistreated. So notice what Zechariah says. He says, I said to them, remember, he's the good shepherd here. He says, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. Stop there. This is Zechariah, the prophet of God, angry saying, you want to pay me my wages, fine. If you don't, fine. I've had enough of you. You're going to live in your idolatry. You don't want to listen. So notice what he said. He said, so they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Stop there. Do you know that some 520 years after this, the, great, the good shepherd, the greatest shepherd of all, Jesus Christ, remember he calls himself the good shepherd? Do you remember how many pieces of silver he was betrayed by? 30 pieces. The chief priest gave 30 pieces of silver to Judas to betray Jesus. How many in here can control how they're going to be betrayed if you're a mere mortal? Now, do you remember what the cost of 30 pieces of silver was in the Old Testament? According to Exodus 21:32, that was the price of a slave. And it shows you how little value was placed on the good shepherd. They bought him off like he was a slave. That's how he was treated. Now, let's read the next verse, verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. 
that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. Stop there. Notice it's Yahweh ultimately that was valued and belittled that way. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is Yahweh. He said before Abraham was, I am. In 520 years after this prophecy, he's betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. And notice what it bought. He says, throw it to the potter. Do you remember the Jewish, the Jewish chief priest who had betrayed Jesus? They gave the money to Judas. Judas betrays him. Judas has remorse. He can't believe that he had betrayed the Son of God. So he takes the money, and he gives it back to the chief priest. And all of a sudden, the chief priests who have just betrayed the Messiah, they all of a sudden find religion, and they say, well, we can't take that money. It's blood money. We can't put that in the treasury. Do you know what they did with it? They bought a potter's field. They bought a potter's field. They bought a potter's field, just as had been prophesied 520 years in advance. The potter's field more than likely was a real potter's field. More than likely it was being used to bury people who were foreigners. It came to be a grave site, but more than likely a potter had once used it, but he depleted all the good soil. So what do you do with it? Well, we'll sell it off. We'll make it into a graveyard and we'll bury the people who we don't know who they are in it, the undesirables. 520 years in advance, predicted the Messiah would be trade 30 pieces of silver, and it would buy a potter's field. Now, how many mere mortals could control how they'd be betrayed? Can you control how you're born, where you're born, and how you're betrayed? And what's more, notice we find out how Jesus would die, Isaiah 53, 5 that he would be pierced through for our transgressions. The term kalal for piercing often is used in the Old Testament for a literal physical piercing. He was pierced through. That's exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross. 715 years in advance, it was predicted how he would die. But it gets even better. Isaiah 53, 9 predicted that he would be buried in the tomb of a wealthy man, do you remember in the book of Matthew, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a very wealthy man, and he says, you know what, I'm going to give Jesus my tomb. Now, why was that so significant? Because giving away a tomb meant that no one else could ever be in that tomb except Jesus and his relatives. They buried by relatives. So as soon as Joseph of Arimathea gave the tomb away, no one else could ever use it, and the cost of tombs would rival the cost of a new car or perhaps even a home. He was a very wealthy man. And so notice in the exaltation of Christ, it starts insignificantly, but he was buried with the wealthy, just as predicted 715 years in advance. How many mere mortals can control how they were born, where they were born, how they'd be betrayed, how they'd be killed, and how they'd be buried? All fulfilled in one man. All fulfilled in one individual. And by the way, this gets better. 1,000 years prior to the birth of Christ, Psalm 1610, David predicted that the Messiah would not be abandoned to the grave, that he'd be raised from the dead. 1,000 years in advance, in fact, the same time period, 1,000 years in advance, in Psalm 1101, the most prolifically quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament, it predicted that whoever this Messiah is, he would ascend into the heavens and he'd be seated at the right hand of God where it says, Yahweh made an utterance to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Dear ones, who else could fulfill 
all of these things. Could you control how you were born, where you were born, how you'd be betrayed, how you'd be killed, where you'd be buried, that you'd be raised from the dead and that you'd be seated at the right hand of God? Could any mere mortal pull that off? Let me give you a quick, succinct case for Christianity. Let me just give one very quickly. First of all, there must be a God. Whoops, I think I just popped there. There must be a God. Why must there be a God? Because if there ever was a time that there was nothing, you'd have nothing now. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Nothing can't do something. Does everyone know that? Nothing can't do anything. So something has to be eternal in order for there to be anything now. So we know that the universe cannot be eternal. Why? The second law, and again I say law, not hypothesis, not theory. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, says all energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state, meaning one day we're going to lose our usable supply of energy in this universe. How can you have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy? The second law of thermodynamics is so devastating, it showed that Jastrow, the famous head of Goddard's NASA Space Institute, he said, no, the universe can't be eternal. Therefore, there must be what? There has to be a creator. It's either the universe is eternal or there's an eternal being outside of the universe. And we know from the second law of thermodynamics, it has to be the latter. There must be a God. Now, has this God revealed himself? Yes, he has in Scripture, and we know it because of the predictive prophecies. Let's ask ourselves the question, was Buddha born of a virgin? No. Was Buddha born in Bethlehem? No. Was he betrayed by 30 pieces of silver? No. Did he begin his ministry in Galilee? No. Was he pierced through for our sins? No. Was he buried with a wealthy man? No. Was he raised from the dead? No. Is he seated at the right hand of God? No. Why is anyone following Buddha? Where's your predictive prophecy? Where is it? That's the declaration to this age. Where is it? Where's your evidence? Why do you believe what you believe? Because it feels good? It's not significant. It's not sufficient. The evidence has to be on your side. Let's ask ourselves Muhammad. Was Muhammad born of a virgin? No. Was Muhammad born in Bethlehem? No. Was Muhammad one who began his ministry in Galilee? No. Was Muhammad betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? No. Was he pierced for our sins? No. Was he buried with a wealthy man? No. Was he raised from the dead? No. Is he seated at the right hand of God? No. Why do they follow him? You know why they follow him and why people won't believe? Jesus said in John 3, 19, that the light came in. Remember, he said the light dawned today in Galilee. But he said men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their sins were evil. That's why. Their deeds were evil. They loved to live in their sin. That's the truth why people don't believe. Because the evidence is powerful. Brothers and sisters, the evidence is powerful to all who don't believe so that they may. But it also gives you great confidence that on the darkest days of your life, you can know that you can know that you can know that your faith is well-placed in Jesus. And that's why God said that he had laid a stone in Zion, remember Isaiah 28, 16, and all those who trust in him will never be, as Paul said in Romans 9, 33, they will never be disappointed.
Your faith is well-placed in Jesus Christ. Okay, now today we also learn from Jesus in Matthew 4.17 that he commanded every single person to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, this shows us that the first advent inaugurated the messianic age. It drew it near so that we have the last days. Now in the last days, this kingdom can break forth at any time. Again, years ago when I was a young man, I had heard from people, prophecy teachers that I respected, that the rebirth of Israel in 1948 is what ushered in the last days. Well, then as the years went on and I learned more of the Bible, I started realizing, well, that's not true. Now, as I say that, I don't want to poo-poo the significance of 1948. It's very important. God providentially brought Israel back into their land. But what I want you to see is that biblically, the last days began with the first coming of Christ and his subsequent pouring out of the Spirit. And we see that in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, where it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the world. Now, what's interesting in this text is I want you to see not only is Jesus described as the creator of all things and the one who will rule, the heir, but notice it says that it was in these last days that he's spoken to us. He's the one who ushered in the last days. So on the screen, my attempt at a schematic here, a timeline, the cross represents the first coming of Christ. And so what we have then is that ushers in the last days. And it's in the last days then at any time the kingdom can break forth. That's why Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I want you to know that not just Jesus, but his apostles believed in this doctrine that the kingdom could come at any time in the last days. I'm going to show you evidence that the apostle Paul himself believed that he could be part of the rapture. In fact, notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, Paul said, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to notice the term we. That's a first-person plural pronoun, hemes in Greek. And so it shows us that Paul believed that he might be one of those who were numbered among the saints at the rapture. Paul himself said that we who are alive. Now, again, was Paul wrong because he wasn't raptured? No, he knows as much about the timing of the rapture as you and I do. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, that no one knows the day or the hour. Only the Father knows the time. So Paul didn't know any more about the timing than you and I. He knew that it was always in the last days at hand. So for Paul, he didn't know if it was a second away, a month away, a year away, a thousand years, two thousand. He didn't know. It's at hand, and that's the same imminence that you and I live under. By the way, this isn't the only text he says it. 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, first person plural, will not all sleep, but we will be changed in what? The twinkling of an eye. Notice he uses the we again. He places himself within the realm of being raptured by the Lord when he would return. That was the possibility. Okay. Now, let's remind ourselves that imminence does not mean that an event has to occur within a certain time frame. 
What it means is that it will occur and that it can occur at any time. There's two things that give us the doctrine of imminence. One is the certainty of the event. The second is the unknowability about when that event will occur. So, for example, sometimes in the Bible, it'll talk about the nearness of an event like the Passover. It'll say the Passover is near. Well, you know when that is. You can look on your calendar and say, aha, it's the 8th of Nisan today. Passover is near. It's on the 10th day. It's two days away. But when it says the second coming is near, what's the date for that? I don't know. So when it says it's near, you don't know how near. A minute, an hour, a day, a year. You don't know. You don't know how near. And so I want you to see not only Paul, not only Jesus, Peter himself talked about the nearness. 1 Peter 4, 7, he said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Do you know that this term near that he's using is the identical form that Jesus used today in Matthew 4.17, when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a perfect active indicative of ingizo, the same identical form. So literally, you could say the end of all things has drawn near. Why? Because we're living in the last days. What does it mean, the end of all things? Well, the end of the old age. When the messianic age comes, all those other things are done away with. And so again, the apostle Peter had the view that because we're in the last days, because the messianic kingdom had been inaugurated one day and any day at any time it could be consummated that's the idea okay so let's turn your bibles if you will to revelation 1 1 i want you to see that the whole book of revelation is built on the doctrine of imminence it's built on it the book of revelation is built on imminence. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 1.1. In fact, we're only going to look at 1.1a for the sake of time. Revelation 1.1. And what I'm going to show you is that Revelation 1.1 is built off of Daniel 2.28. Daniel 2.28 and Revelation 1.1 have a synonymous clause in them with one important change. So notice Revelation 1.1. I hope you've turned there. Remember, just before your maps, the book of Revelation Revelation 1, 1, he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, notice this phrase, the things which must soon take place. Notice that must, that's the divine necessity. The things which must soon take place. I like to put the soon at the end so I can remember it. The things which must take place soon. Now, the reason that's important, you don't have to turn to it, but jot Daniel 2.28 down. Daniel 2.28, and you might be asking, well, why? Let me explain. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 2, it was revealed to Daniel how the Messianic kingdom would one day come. It would crush all the other kingdoms prior to it. And in Daniel 2.28, in the Septuagint, there's a clause which is word for word the same as what we just read, the same phrase, the things which must take place soon. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, these are the things which must take place in the last days. Notice the only difference, and you can check it word for word, it's the same except the last days. He uses last days. But John says these are the things that must take place soon. The only difference between those two clauses is Daniel said last days and John said soon. 
Now, why did Daniel push off the coming of the kingdom to the last days? Because you needed the first advent of Christ first. But once Jesus began his ministry, what? In the subsequent pouring of the Spirit, it ushered in the last days. So the reason why this kingdom is soon or at hand is because what? We're in the last days. You see the difference? So Revelation 1.1 right away hits you in the forehead if you're the careful reader. It says imminence. What Daniel said was pushed off to the last days is now at hand. That's what he's telling us, and it's all over the place. The whole book is bracketed by this idea. Revelation 1.3, listen to the promise. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Here you have the same adverb, ingus, of the, as the verb ingitso. Same term that Jesus is using in Matthew 4.17. How near? A day away, a month away, a year away? You don't know. It is perpetually at hand until it comes. Do you know how the end of the book ends? Revelation 22.10. It says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Ingus, again, adverbial form of the same verb that was used in Matthew 4.17. Brothers and sisters, the whole Bible, or I should say the whole book of Revelation, is built upon the doctrine of imminence. Now, for fun, let me have you turn your Bibles. We've got some time. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. I'm going to show you in all sorts of places you see implications of imminence. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Bob will be coming to that in our studies if the Lord should tarry. Right? If anyone, notice what he says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. The term accursed there is anathema, literally cursed of hell. So right next to anathema, he places Maranatha. The term Maranatha is left right in the Aramaic. It's not uh, transliterated or translated. It's just left right in the Aramaic. It's an Aramaic term. It means, our Lord come. Now, I want to read you a quote from the late, great Reynolds Showers. He was a, a beautiful man, great scholar. He went to be home with the Lord in his 80s just a couple of years ago. He had died. But listen to what he said regarding this term and his research. Dr. Reynolds Showers said, quote, It would appear then that the fixed usage of the term Maranatha by the early Christians, was a witness to their strong belief in the imminent return of Christ. If they knew that Christ could not return at any moment because of other events or a time period that had to transpire first, why did they petition him in a way that implied that he could come at any moment? Unquote. Brothers and sisters, Maranatha. Our Lord come and he can break forth at any time. Now, because that is indeed the case, this is why Jesus said, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. Now, what is the term repent? Meto noeo. Let me unpack that a little bit. Everyone has probably seen this prefix in other places, meta. Meta, you, um, everyone in here probably has heard of metaphysics. It's the physics behind the physics, as it were, right? Uh, noeo is the idea of knowledge or knowing. So literally, you could render this like an afterthought or a change of thought or a change of mind. And the idea, because you have a change of mind or you're thinking, you have a change 
in direction of your life. So what repentance literally is, is where someone, by the power of the Spirit, is convinced, you know what, I'm not, this isn't good that I'm living for the devil, for sin, for idolatry, and unbelief. I have a change of mind. I don't think that's a good idea. The evidence is compelling. I'm convinced. I'm turning from that. I have a change of mind. I'm turning to God on his terms. That's the idea of repentance. So you're turning from something, unbelief, sin, idolatry, and you're turning to something, God in his terms, which is faith in Christ. So I like to say that repentance and faith are two sides of the same salvific coin. Heads is faith, tails is repentance. If you have saving faith, you therefore automatically have repentance. If you have repentance, you're repenting to saving faith. Okay, that's the idea that's being conveyed here. Now, I want you to see that this term metoneo, the idea of having a change of mind and a change of direction, is often synonymous with turning. Another term, epistrepho. We'll see that as Paul here explains to Agrippa how he used to preach the gospel to various peoples. Paul said of himself, Acts 26.20, that he kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent, there's metonoeo, and turn, epistrepho, to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Notice here, repentance and turning really aren't two different things, they're really synonymous. The idea, if you have a change of mind, you're turning in the direction of your life. That's the idea, you're turning from unbelief, turning to faith in Christ. Now, why should everyone do that? Because the evidence is so compelling. Yes, this Jesus who existed as God and with God, I'm talking about the Son. As the Son, he existed as God and with God from all eternity. He humbled himself, as the book of Philippians points out, and he became a man. Through the virgin birth, he became truly God and truly man. He was always truly God, but truly man and truly God in one person so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could, so that vicariously his righteousness could be given to us. This Jesus also vicariously went to a cross, Jesus the just, on behalf of us the unjust, so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins, so that you and I could be brought to God. Jesus, the fact that he lived the perfect life and died a substitutionary death to atone and remove our sin, was proven by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. His resurrection proves his claims, just like predictive prophecy does. When Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it why he was raised from the dead. This Jesus ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. From where he's coming imminently, it's at hand, to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemy. What must we do? Today we saw in Matthew 4, 17, he said, repent. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a clever idea. It was a command. Every single person that has ever lived and ever will live is commanded to repent and to turn from unbelief and turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone, in Christ alone. And for all those who will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they really will have the forgiveness of sins.
they really will be a partaker in this glorious kingdom that is one day going to be centered in Jerusalem. All because it first was inaugurated in Galilee. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the great promise of everlasting life, all because of what Christ did for us. We thank you that he fulfills all of the passages in the Old Testament regarding who the Messiah would be, that he really did begin this earthly ministry in Galilee, just as foretold. We thank you for these great promises that we may know in the dark days of our life that our faith is well-placed, that we won't be disappointed in trusting in him, I pray, Lord, that you'd give stamina and strength to my dear brothers and sisters. Encourage them with these words. I also pray, Heavenly Father, for those that may be listening, that maybe today would be their day. You'd regenerate their hearts and bring them to faith, not because or despite the evidence, but because of the evidence, Lord. We pray that you'd give us opportunities to proclaim your gospel. Give us boldness. Give us opportunities and regenerate hearts before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you will, for the benediction. Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.